Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm the director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And today, we're going to discuss an issue and uh, consider a book and the arguments of the book that goes to the heart of my mission here at the Cato Institute, that is the idea of representative government. Our book today is The Ethics of Voting by Jason Brennan. As usual, some administrative uh, material to begin with. We'll start by having both a presentation by Professor Brennan, followed by comment comments by uh, Brian Kaplan uh, on the book. And then thereafter, we'll also go to a question and answer. And then about 5.30 or so, we'll decamp upstairs for a reception. Uh, and you can talk further with the author. And also, of course, you can purchase now, uh, earlier or later, you can purchase a copy of the book. Uh, I would also add to this as we go uh, through uh, today, for today's event, please turn off your cell phones as, uh, right at this point so that uh, we don't have any untoward noise. So thanks very much. Um, I begin with this book, which I think is an important and very interesting book, by noting that we, at the moment, are in the District of Columbia. And in the District of Columbia, perhaps more so than in the rest of the country, politics is thought to be an extremely important activity. Many people here in DC, for a variety of reasons, I think, think it's more than that. They believe that to govern the society is to guide the society towards some higher goal. That, towards some higher goal that would not be achieved if people were simply left to their own devices, simply left to make their own choices in the society. So politics is, in this view, more than simply the struggle over what government will do or will not do. It is a higher calling. It seeks the common good or the public interest or some idea like this. It is something beyond mere self-interest. In this view, politics, and say the most common of political activities is voting, is not just another action that people may do or refrain from doing as they choose. It's a higher obligation for the individual in this view, a higher obligation that should be carried out apart from choices or the self-interest of the individual. It has ultimately, if you go to enough events in Washington and come across the people making these kinds of assumptions, it has the feeling of a religious duty to it. This view, this view of voting and the importance of politics and the higher calling of the political and of government is a view that leads to many policy proposals which I think fit the general rubric of reform. Mandatory voting is one of the more extreme and less articulated, but it's out there. But there's also weaker proposals to encourage voting, to always have higher turnout, to make it easier to vote. There is exclusion proposals to exclude speech that doesn't refer to the common good. That's, those perhaps are more popular in the past than now, but they'll be back in the future, I can assure you. And there's the ideas of clean elections, elections that are as clean of, of private financing. So again, all these notions of politics as a higher calling and as a kind of pure enterprise that needs not be sullied by the rest of society. And as always, virtue in this case, what is thought of as civic virtue, uh, if it's absent, if you don't vote, or if you engage in politics in a bad way, then it should be encouraged or even required 
uh, by, of individuals by government. Now, our book today deals with all of these questions and other ones that are related in a, a profound and deep way. Um, I want to, first of all, begin, before we hear from, by introducing uh, our author today, the, the author of The Ethics of Voting, Jason Brennan. Um, professor Brennan is an assistant professor of business and philosophy at Georgetown University now. He is just beginning that, uh, that job uh, this fall. He was assistant professor of philosophy research at Brown University and a member of the Political Theory Project and Interdisciplinary Research Center at Brown. He specializes in political philosophy, ethics, and metaethics. His current research is on democratic theory, voting ethics, and, politi and political liberties. He's developing a new liberal pluralistic theory of civic virtue that emphasizes the public value of private non-political activity that I can tell you that new theory is a breakthrough and very important in, in this area, uh, in my judgment, uh, of democratic theory. To together with David Schmitz, he is the author of A Brief History of Liberty, which was published in 2010. The Ethics of Voting is his second book, and we're very happy to have him here at the Cato Institute today. Jason? Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you all braving the 100-degree heat and 100% humidity uh, to come out. So let me start by talking about a character I call Betty Benevolence. And Betty Benevolence is a person who wants to make the world a better place but just doesn't know how. In fact, she always backfires and does the wrong thing, makes things worse. So when she sees a starving child, she'll take away the kid's remaining food. When she sees someone in pain, she'll kick him in the shins. When she sees somebody drowning, she'll pour water on his face. Now, Betty means well, but she makes things worse. And the reason is because she doesn't know what she's doing. And one possibility, and something I think is in fact the case, is that a lot of voters are quite a bit like Betty Benevolence. So suppose they are. What does that tell us about the ethics of voting? What does it tell us about whether they should or should not vote? Well, how we vote is morally significant. Voting changes the size of government, the scope of government, and the kinds of things government does. If we make bad choices at the polls, the quality of government can become worse, and that can make people's lives go worse in turn. Bad choices at the polls mean there can be war, lost opportunities, bad economies, more crime, and so on. It can mean that people will be oppressed or people who can fail to be liberated who should be liberated. So how we vote matters and it's morally significant. It's not like choosing food off a menu for yourself. It's not like going to Chipotle and deciding what salsa you prefer. When you're voting, you're voting for everybody. You're making a decision that will be unilaterally imposed upon all people regardless of whether they consent to it and regardless of whether they like it. The rules are imposed through violence and threats of violence. They're backed up by force. And on any reasonable theory, liberal, libertarian, or otherwise, uh, that is a big deal, morally speaking. So how we vote matters. It's not just, you know, it's not about minding your own business. When you're voting, you're making it every other people's business, and you're making it at gunpoint. So uh, voting matters. <clears throat> now, uh, I think the typical person subscribes to what I call the folk theory of voting ethics, and which holds that, uh, there is a moral obligation to vote. Normally speaking, you have a duty to vote. You can be excused in some circumstances, but usually you should vote. As part of this, they hold that political participation, especially voting, and kind of quasi-political participation, like serving in the military or in public service, is essential to civic virtue. It's how you do your job as a citizen. It's how you do your part for society. They also hold that, most people hold that nearly any vote is morally acceptable. Almost any sincere vote is okay. It's permissible to vote almost however you like. 
And finally, most people hold that buying, selling, and trading votes is inherently wrong regardless of the consequences or the circumstances. And I think that the folk theory of voting ethics is mistaken. And so in the ethics of voting, I challenge all three or all four of these positions. Instead, I argue that there is no moral obligation to vote. It's just one of many things you can do. There's nothing special. You don't have a duty to vote. You're not failing in civic virtue if you choose not to vote. Um, I also argue that private, non-political activity can be just as good a way of exercising civic virtue as participating in politics. I also argue that, however, even though you have no duty to vote, if you do vote, you have very strict obligations with regard to how you vote. So you should vote for what you justifiably believe will promote the common good, or otherwise, you have an obligation to abstain. So the choice is yours. Vote well or don't vote at all. Those are your options, morally speaking. And finally, I argue that it's permissible to buy, trade, and sell votes provided you don't vote badly when you do so. There's something inherently wrong about the money and politics. It's just when it leads to bad outcomes. Um, today, I'm going to talk about the first three of these points. I'm not really going to talk about the buy, tra buying, trading, or selling of votes. Okay. So in my view, responsible voting, good voting, permissible voting means voting for what the voter justifiably believes will promote the common good. So what I mean by that is uh, you have to believe you're going to serve the common good. You can't simply be voting selfishly, trying to exploit others for your benefit. You should be trying to serve everybody or as many people as possible through your votes. Your belief must be justified, meaning you shouldn't just, it's not enough to simply think that you're helping people the way that Betty Benevolence thinks she's helping people. You actually have to have really good evidence for your, like a sufficient evidence to ground your belief, the way that a scientist would have evidence for his beliefs or social scientists would have evidence for her beliefs. Um, and finally, it can't be selfish. Okay, so let's start off by asking about is there a duty to vote? Why think that? Most people believe there is a duty to vote, but the question is, are they right about that? And there's a variety of arguments people have adduced in favor of this view. I'm just going to talk about a few. So one claim is that you should vote because you have an obligation to vote because individual votes have some sort of utility. They're useful in some way. They promote the good. So the claim is something like this, that voting has a high enough chance of producing some significant good such that the expected utility of an individual vote is pretty high. And then the argument is it's, you, know, you should do that because it's relatively low cost and you're producing all this good for society. You know, the idea of expected utility, if you haven't heard that term before, is something like this. If you buy a lottery ticket that has a chance of winning a million dollars, like a 10% chance of winning a million dollars, you can treat that lottery ticket as if it's worth $100,000. A 10% chance of winning a million is worth 100000 What's a vote worth? Well, if you vote for the right candidate, that might be worth maybe a trillion dollars for everybody, um, and you have some chance of being decisive. Okay? The problem with these kinds of arguments, though, some people argue that there's a chance you'll change the election for the better, or that there's a chance that you'll save democracy, it might collapse if you don't vote. The problem with these kinds of arguments is that the probability that your vote will make any sort of difference is vanishingly small. It's not one in a million, or one in a billion, or one in a trillion. It's, it's vanishingly small. So it's hard to ground an argument in favor of their thinking that there's a duty to vote on the claim that your vote makes a difference because individual votes don't really matter. And that you might think that's going to be a problem for me later because I'm going to argue you shouldn't vote badly, but we'll, we'll get to that. So instead, um, the best kind of arguments in favor of thinking that there's a duty to vote are going to hold something like this, that uh, if you don't vote, you're free riding on the people who do vote. Non-voters get the benefit of having good government. They get the benefit of living in a stable democracy, but they're not contributing to that democracy. They're kind of like people who drive on the streets but don't pay taxes for the streets. Or they're kind of like people who enjoy a clean park but who refuse to abide by the rules of the park and don't pitch in and you know, keep it clean and litter or so on. So non-voters get the benefit of government, but they don't provide government themselves. So they're free riders. 
Or another argument just says that an unwillingness to vote simply shows a lack of civic virtue. Civic virtue is an important moral virtue, and if you're not voting, then you lack civic virtue. And those are two of the best arguments in favor of thinking that you should vote. But I don't think that even these arguments vote, uh, these arguments succeed, and I'll tell you a little bit wh wh why right now. I think these arguments are based upon a bad, kind of archaic view of civic virtue and of what it would mean to pay a debt to society if there is such a thing. To give you an analogy for that, you know, say back in archaic Greek times, back in the time of Homer, uh, the Greeks would have thought that courage is a virtue that could only be expressed on the battlefield. And nowadays, we've had a little bit of moral advancement since then, and we recognize that courage can be expressed anywhere. It can be expressed in childbirth or in working a job or in like on the playground or just doing day-to-day -day things. Courage is about an appropriate response to risk, and you can, you can express that anywhere. I want to say the same thing about civic virtue. Pretty much every moral philosopher and every political philosopher, much to my surprise, defines civic virtue the same way. They all say that civic virtue is the disposition and ability to promote the common good. But notice that this definition leaves open just what exactly you're supposed to do to express civic virtue. That definition doesn't imply that you have to express civic virtue through political participation. And I think that's, that's, that opening should be uh, looked at rather closely because you can promote the common good through private activity. Um, a very common thought in the liberal tradition, not just the libertarian tradition, but the liberal tradition broadly, is that private activities benefit the common good. When we're engaging in private activities like art, like business, um, like uh, uh, culture making and so on, um, we're creating and sustaining improving, and improving networks of trade and cooperation. We're, engaging, we're producing an extended web of cooperation, and it's this web of cooperation, these networks of trade and so on, that are responsible, or, or large part responsible for us having as good lives as we have. We're able to realize our differing conceptions of the good life in large part because people are engaging in all these private activities. So these private activities are promoting the common good. When philosophers want to prove that government promotes the common good, they'll do state of nature thought experiments. Well, they'll have us imagine, they'll say, imagine for the sake of argument that government didn't exist. What would life be like? And they say it'll be nasty, solitary, poor, brutish, and short. Well, you can make a similar kind of argument for private activity. Imagine a world in which everyone engaged in politics and no one did anything else. They didn't make art, they didn't make grow food, they didn't do any of the private stuff. That would be also a world in which the common good would be, or there would be no common good. There uh, it would be a world in which life is nasty, solitary, poor, brutish, and short. Well, maybe not solitary, we're all at the forum talking to one another. Uh, so we're promoting the common good through private activity, and that can be an appropriate way to express civic virtue. You, know, you, don't have to, you don't have to engage in politics, you can do something else. So imagine there's a woman named Phyllis the Physician, a medical genius. Um, and every hour she spends on medicine, she produces a new scientific breakthrough. If Phyllis wants to promote the common good, it's not really worth her time or our time for her to, to get to the polls and vote. What she should do instead is work on medicine. Now, she's an extreme case, but elements of what's true of Phyllis generalize to all of us. We can all promote the common good through means other than engaging in politics. Politics is really just nothing special. It's just one of many things you can do to serve society. Okay. Uh, all right. So that's a little bit about civic virtue and about uh, non-political contributions to, to the common good. Let's talk a little bit about how you should vote if you do vote and why I think there, is, there are strict obligations with regard to how people vote. Now, one objection to the very idea of there being responsible voting is the claim that uh, you have the right to vote. And so, so you have the right to vote, so therefore you can vote however you want. But that's, that's really causing, like, it's based on a kind of confusion about the word right. When I say you have the right to do something, what I typically mean is other people shouldn't stop you. But it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to do it. 
So here's an example. I have the right of assembly, and my right of assembly means that I ha is permit like other people should allow me to join neo-Nazi political movements. But it would be morally deplorable for me to become a neo-Nazi and participate in neo-Nazi political movements. Hitler had the right of free speech, and he used that right of free speech to write Mein Kampf and to advocate all sorts of horrible things. Now, other people shouldn't have stopped him from doing that, but it was morally deplorable for him to do so. So the mere fact that you have the right to do something doesn't tell us that it's right for you to do it. It just means you shouldn't be stopped. It might still be a bad thing to do. And so it might also be with voting. So what do I mean by voting well? Well, uh, first I'm going to explain what I mean by voting well, and then I'm going to explain uh, why I think people ought to vote well if they do vote or otherwise should abstain. So the first part about voting well is you have to have sufficient epistemic justification for your political beliefs, which means that your political beliefs are based on strong evidence. A lot of people, when it comes to politics, they just kind of have certain emotional dispositions to believe one thing or another. They don't impartially weigh the evidence. If they look at evidence, they process it in a highly biased way. You know, they, they, they take in evidence that confirms their view. They dismiss and ridicule evidence that disconfirms their view. Uh, these are people who don't have justification for their beliefs about politics. And these are people who are not going to be good voters on my theory. Um, other ways to fail to vote well would be if you're completely ignorant, if you just don't know what you're talking about at all. Um, if you're irrational, if you arrive at your beliefs the wrong way, and Brian Kaplan has a lot to say about that and people being irrational in politics when it comes to their economic beliefs, um, or possibly also having deeply immoral beliefs, like racist beliefs, and then acting upon those. And I'm going to argue that it's wrong to vote on the basis of these kinds of beliefs. Now, I've also said that when you're voting, you should vote for the common good. And a lot of people are skeptical about the idea of the common good. Um, but I don't think we need to be so skeptical. Uh, it's true that we have, there's diversity in our lifestyles. We don't all want the same thing. But to say that you're committed to the common good doesn't mean that you think that there's some sort of special good of society over and above the good of individuals. Instead, you're saying you can be committed to the idea that to, for us to live our diverse conceptions of the good life, we all need certain background institutions and policies. There are certain things government can do that can make it more likely that each of us can live our good lives, and there are things that it can do to make it less likely. So we all need a certain degree of wealth, a certain degree of freedom, a certain degree of health. We need social order and so on. And so the common good are these background things that we need in order to realize our differing conceptions of the good. So saying that there is a common good that the government should promote and that you should vote in favor of isn't committing you to, some, to thinking of society as some sort of organic whole with a life of its own. It's just saying that there's a bunch of individuals and there are things you can do to make their lives go better or worse. Okay, so that's an idea of what it means to vote well. But why vote well? Why think that there's any sort of obligation to vote that way? Here's a problem for me. As I mentioned before, the likelihood that your vote will be decisive is vanishingly small. The expected utility of your vote is vanishingly small. To give you an idea of that, suppose there's an election being held right now between two candidates, um, and suppose that 50.5% of people favor one candidate, 49.5% of people favor another, and we're about to have the election. Suppose somehow you could prove that one candidate is worth $10 trillion more than the other candidate to the economy over time. So candidate A, whom 50.5% of people favor, is worth $10 trillion more than candidate B. Uh, and suppose that the number of voters in the upcoming election is going to be the same as in the 2004 presidential election. Well, on these numbers, the expected utility of your vote is equal to 1.45 times 10 to the negative $2,647 on the most common way of calculating expected utility. In other words, much, much less than a penny, which means that a good vote doesn't make much of a difference and a bad vote doesn't make much of a difference. That would seem to be a big problem for me because I'm saying you shouldn't vote badly, and at the same time, I'm going with the consensus and saying individual votes don't make much of a difference. So why, think you why not just think you should just vote however you please? After all, it doesn't make a difference. 
So here's an argument in favor of thinking that even though your individual vote doesn't matter and doesn't make have very significant consequences, you should still vote well or abstain. And I'll start with a thought experiment. Imagine that the following happens. You're walking along one day and you come across um, 10 people holding guns and they've tied an innocent child to a, uh, <clears throat> to a stake. And you ask them what's going on here and they say, well, we're a trained firing squad. What we're going to do is we're going to execute the kid for no reason. Um, he's innocent, but we're going to kill him. And we've all been trained to fire at exactly the same time and have our bullets each of, hit the kid at exactly the same time. And each of our shots on its own will be fatal. So there's 10 people, they're all gonna shoot at the same time and each shot would be on sufficient to kill the kid on its own, right? And then they say, you realize there's nothing you can do, you can't stop them, you can't call the cops, you can't prevent them from killing the kid. So you can't stop them. And they say to you, well, hey, I've got an idea, we've got an 11th gun, like, would you like to join in? It's a really good gun, so if you aim, you'll be able to manage to, like, to fire a fatal shot as well. Like, in this situation, regardless of whether you choose to shoot or not, the kid is going to die. He's going to be victimized here. It won't make a difference. However, most people have a very strong moral intuition that you should not participate. If you can walk away from this situation, you should do so. Right? Even, though, you know, even though firing won't make a difference, you're morally obligated not to shoot. Right? Underlying this intuition might be something called what I call the clean hands principle, which goes something like this. It says you should not participate in a collectively harmful activity when the cost of refraining from such activities is low. In other words, when there's a group of people who are as a group harming other innocent people, then when you, you should not participate with that group if you can walk away at a relatively low cost to yourself. And then I extend this to voting. That's what happens with voting. We as a group, we as an electorate, harm a bunch of innocent people, the governed, when there's some overlap there. Um, and you should not participate in that and be one of the people causing the harm if you can walk away without any significant cost to yourself. And of course, you can walk away without any significant cost to yourself, so you should. So for the same reason that you don't participate and become one of the people who fires with a firing squad, you shouldn't join in and become just another bad voter. Now, why think you should vote for the common good? Why not just vote you should vote, hold that you should vote selfishly? And here it's worth rem remembering again that the rules of the game, the, the political outcomes are imposed upon all people, upon innocent people, by force, through violence and threats of violence. And reasonable people, and if you're going to impose rules upon people, if you're going to impose rules through violence upon people, then they should be the kinds of things that reasonable people have reasonable grounds for accepting. Otherwise, you're just subjugating them. The best argument in favor of thinking that it'd be okay to vote selfishly is if there were something like an invisible hand of politics. You could at least imagine a scenario in which everyone voted selfishly, somehow the political system would turn these selfish votes into a publicly beneficial outcome. You know, many economists claim that's what happens with market activity. Uh, you know, Adam Smith famously claimed that you get a bunch of people acting selfishly on the market, and the market process magically transforms uh, these selfish activities into publicly beneficial outcomes. So is there some sort of invisible hand for politics? And I don't think there is. The, the things about the market system that make it so that selfish activity can be publicly beneficial are not present in uh, political systems. So for example, in markets, uh, exchanges are typically voluntary. People are free to walk away. If you don't think the exchange is going to benefit you, just don't do it. You know, in politics, that's not the case. There are all sorts of laws being passed in this country that I cannot meaningfully walk away from. It'd be very, very costly uh, at the very least. In markets, at least in general, when they're working pretty well, there aren't significant externalities. We're not imposing a bunch of costs upon third-party bystanders. In politics, that's all we do all the time. The whole point of politics is to externalize actions. So uh, there are externalities. It's like you're polluting, right? Uh, also, so 
politics is involuntary, it's externalized, and finally, the information you need for politics is relatively hard to acquire. You know, you know in a market, like, you just see a price, and that tells you something about um, what you should do. When it comes to, uh, to politics, there's no analog of a price to let you know. So it's really di relatively difficult to know um, what's good or bad. Okay? So again, so the best argument in favor of thinking it would be okay for you to vote selfishly when it comes to politics would be one that held that somehow the political system transforms selfish votes into good outcomes, but we don't have any reason to think that that's the case. So I'll end here just by saying, talking a little bit about what I think you need to know to vote well. Um, it's not just what politicians advocate. You know, it's very easy to like go and find out pol political platforms and see what people um, intend to do. It's very, it's pretty easy to find out what their bents are. It's even pretty easy to get get a sense of whether they're sincere or not. But that's not really all you need. You need more than that. So imagine, just as a parallel, imagine that you have asthma or say bronchitis, and you go to two different physicians um, for your sickness. And one physician says, "I'm going to prescribe albuterol to you for and albuterol and uh, prednisone for your asthma." And another one says, "I'm going to uh, prescribe." Uh, minoxidine, right? And so you've got advice from one doctor and another, and now you need to decide whose doctor's advice you're going to accept. Well, in this situation, it's not enough to know the platforms of the doctors. You need to know something about the medicine that they prescribe, or you need to know something about their credentials. Let's say they both went to, uh, uh, you know, Harvard Medical School, so the credential thing won't help you. Now you need to know something about the medicine. In this case, if you looked up the things about the medicine, you'd find that, um, you know, Albuterol and uh, prednisone are for asthma, and minoxidine is for high blood pressure. Okay? So it's something like that. It's something like that is going on with politics as well. You've got sincere political parties who are prescribing something to fix the country. They probably mean it, but in order to know who how to vote, it's not enough to know what they stand for. You need to know something about the policies. So if one policy, if one group says we're going to have free trade, and another group says we're not going to have free trade, we're going to have more protectionism. In order for you to be a good voter, you need to have justified beliefs about what will happen if free trade is implemented versus protectionism. Okay, so. If your goal is to increase prosperity, it's not enough to know what people advocate. You need to know what will happen if they actually get their way. Okay. So I'll end there. Thank you. <clears throat> you know, it, it might have occurred to you, as it did occur to me, listening to Jason, that uh, all of us in this room probably have a common good in the uh, ambient temperature being lower than it is right now. Uh, and all I can say is, I, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, as you know, we're doing a, a lot of building on the, uh, and building, we'll have a great uh, auditorium one day and you will have paid the price actually. Uh, and that's what causes the air conditioning it's a little more uncertain, so the temperature is a little more uncertain than it has been in the past. Again, my regrets for that, but thank you very much for staying. Uh, it's a, for this uh, really fascinating and for coming for this fascinating uh, presentation. Now it's time to move on to our commentator. And our commentator today is Brian Kaplan. Brian is professor of economics at George Mason University. And of course, many of you I know will know him also as a blogger at Econlog, where he, he uh, blogs with Arnold Kling. His first book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, was named the best political book of the year by the New York Times. His new book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, came out in April, and Brian was telling us that it's been a, a big success uh, and been much discussed in the media. You may have seen some of that. Certainly what you can do, if you haven't seen, uh, the, we had a book forum for that book uh, earlier in the year, and if you go to Cato, C-A-T-O dot org, and go to the events 
uh, tab, you can find an events archive where you could go back and easily find Brian's uh, book forum and have a look at it. I, I uh, recommend that to you. Brian's also published in many places, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, as well as the American Economic Review, Economic Journal, and Journal of Law and Economics and Intelligence. He's also appeared on 2020 and C-SPAN. Uh, and today, he's at the Cato Institute to talk about the ethics of voting. Ryan? Let's see. Do I just do this to get my slides up? I believe. All right. Thank you. All right. So there is so little to criticize in Jason Brennan's excellent book that I'm going to take this time to lash out at the competition instead. <laughs> All right, so if you take a cynical look at moral philosophers, you will notice two main types. Uh, type one I call the conventional rationalizers. Uh, these are philosophers who take the status quo, or what we call folk morality, for granted, and then desperately try to deduce what they already believe from abstract moral principles. Okay, uh, so some prime examples here. Uh, I was wondering about whether to do this one, but I decided I would just stick my neck out and do it. Uh, John Stuart Mill. So if you read, for example, what he says about whether it's wrong to lie or whether, say, base pleasures are better, or can possibly be as good as higher pleasures and then try to deduce it from his utilitarian principles, it's just painful to read. Because what he's saying does not follow from the principle, but he doesn't want to say the principle's wrong, but he just wants to add on additional things and then somehow end up where he started. Uh, and of course, I know many libertarians like John Stuart Mill, so uh, this may be controversial. But here's someone less popular, John Rawls. Uh, so John Rawls, you can read the difference principle, which says that society should be organized in the way that is, uh, that is maximally advantageous for the least well-off group. But then somehow foreigners don't figure into the picture at all. Like, why wouldn't they be the more, the, more the more disadvantaged group? Well, it might be because that isn't what we think. Right? So if the principle implies something that we don't think, then we either change the principle around or we desperately try to say somehow the principle really does say it or we add on some additional interpretation. Right? Uh, so over, overall, fairly painful to read because I mean, it really comes down to there's certain conclusions that they're going to reach no matter what the philosophy is, more or less. And then they have some abstract principles from which they try to deduce what they already think, but usually they fail because it's really hard to deduce what, every, what you already think from a, from a short number of abstract principles. All right, now type number two. Uh, if you don't like type number one, type number two is possibly worse. Uh, these I call the crazy rationalists. Uh, so what a crazy rationalist does is very different from what a conventional rational rationalizer does. A crazy rationalist starts with a supposedly self-evident well, one-sentence moral principle, which they take absolutely for granted. So look, this is absolutely clear. Couldn't be anything, and nothing else could be, could be true. This is the truth. And then they dogmatically deduce bizarre moral conclusions without blinking. Right, over and over. Or again, they may blink every now and then, but say, well, sorry, that's what the first principle, which is indubitable in all ways, shows. All right, so of course, the uh, classic example from the history of philosophy is Immanuel Kant, uh, famous for the view that if an axe murderer asks you where the children are, it is wrong to lie and say they went that away. Uh, he also has a really odd view that if you're a sailor on a ship with food and the ship crashes, you're not allowed to, the sailors are not allowed to eat it. They have to starve to death. All right, uh, odd view, but you know, apparently it follows from the principle that you should always uh, act as if the maximum of your act could, by that action, become a universal moral law. Right. Again, another, 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 you know, a bizarre view to begin with, and one, one that's very hard to understand, but uh, he stuck to his guns. Or uh, another example, uh, probably familiar to people, Cato Murray Rothbard, who said that it was okay to allow your child to starve to death, 
even when you had plenty of food, so on. And also, it was at least unclear whether you thought private ownership of nuclear weapons was okay. A little, little fuzzy on that, but all right. Now, so just some further cynicism here. Uh, my slogans, conventional rationalizers try to deduce the more obvious from the less obvious. So you begin by something that isn't obvious at all in order to get to the conclusion that you already believe that most people accept anyway. Uh, the crazy rationalists are uh, odder. They try to deduce the absurd from the questionable. All right, so begin with an abstract principle that most people can't even understand, and then deduce from it conclusions like starve to death on the island rather than open up the crates that are going to sink in the ocean anyway. All right, so both misunderstand what I would say is the whole point of philosophic argument, namely to intellectually move from the more obvious to the less obvious. There's no need to prove things that are obvious. Right? And if you try to prove something obvious from something less obvious, you're just going to confuse people. Right? So if, you are, if there is a view that you consider obvious that is just more honest and more productive to say, I think this is obvious. Other people may say, I don't find it obvious. But at least you aren't trying to bamboozle them by coming up with some nearly incomprehensible abstract principle, which they have to spend a long time figuring out what it would possibly mean. And you can argue about what is implied by the principle, which probably is so poorly stated it's not clear what it implies. So better just to, st to stick your neck out and say what you think is obvious. And someone doesn't find it obvious, at least you know what you're arguing about. All right, so conventional rationalizers are best at convincing people who already agree with them, uh, which again, you know, will explain to the success of someone like John Rawls, who basically came up with a conclusion that the American welfare state circa 1971 or so was the best form of government. You know, later came down to, it's not the best form of government for other countries where people disagree with us. It's even odder. All right. uh, but they are best to convince people already agree with them. And you know, again, not surprising because you know, they're, starting, you know, they're starting with principles that are, or claims that are already widely held. And then if they have an argument that isn't very good, the least of that conclusion, who's going to naysay them? Well, I mean, you know, if you agree with them, why do you need to pick apart their argument that much? And you know, of course, since you probably have some equally bad arguments that, uh, for things that are widely agreed to, maybe you don't want to start things up. Uh, now, uh, crazy rationalists habitually forget about contrapositives. So remember that little thing in logic? So if A implies B, then not B implies not A. Right, so we're a key point. So uh, if the denial of your conclusion is more plausible than your premises, you have a reductio ad absurdum, not a proof. Right, so for example, if, you come up with a, if your principle implies that it's OK to le let your baby starve to death, this is probably not a good proof uh, of the uh, permissibility of letting your baby starve to death. Rather, it's probably a uh, rather uh, rather it shows that your premise is wrong, at least very questionable. Okay, so now I am of course going to talk about Jason's book. Uh, I just wanted to begin by uh, demeaning his competition to show uh, to elevate him, and uh, you can see why what he's doing is better than what most other philosophers are doing. So this is why the ethics of voting works. Uh, he happily falls into neither of what I will call the sterile camps. Instead, he works in a very different way. He begins with straightforward common sense moral premises. Premises that people who don't agree with his conclusions are inclined to accept. He's searching for some, for some common ground. He's trying to find a principle that someone who didn't already agree with his conclusion might say, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, rather than, you know, and in particular, trying to get a premise where people can at least understand what he's saying, rather than something like the categorical comparative where almost no one can figure out what it would possibly mean. Right? And then he uses these straightforward common sense moral premises to deduce unconventional but still plausible conclusions. So he's also not doing what the conventional rationalizers do, which is, argue, which is you know, begin with something, you know, something less plausible and argue, for, argue in favor of something more plausible. Right? If that's what you're doing, why even bother with the arguments? Why not just assert the conclusion and say, well, I mean, you probably accept this already, right? 
You know, the reason why you offer an argument is that you've got a starting point that is persuasive, uh, that is more persuasive than the ending point. If you don't, if, if you've got an ending point that's more persuasive than, than, than the premises, then what's the point of having the premises? You could just save everybody a lot of time and just say, well, it seems obvious to me. Does it seem obvious to you? Yep, yep. All right, let's go home. All right, so uh, let's take uh, you know the following example. Right, I think you can go you know do this for all four of the main arguments that Jason makes in the book. But here's one. So uh, Jason, you know, Brandon's conclusion that quote, voters are not obligated to vote, but if they do vote, they owe to others and themselves to be adequately rational, unbiased, just, and informed about their political beliefs. End quote. All right, now you could try deducing this from the categorical imperative or something like that and leave everyone confused. Uh, but instead, he tried, you know, so, you know, justifies the claim in several ways, but simplest one is just what I'll, what I'll call his surgeon's analogy. So uh, you wouldn't praise an ignoramus for participating in surgery. You, no one would say, it doesn't matter where you cut, but cut. So look, the important thing is that you had a scalpel and that you used it. As to whether you actually helped the person or hurt them, that's not important. You, know, you just did what you thought was right. Okay, that would seem to be a ridiculous position and ridiculous to people who don't agree with anything else that Jason is saying. All right. So and Jason says, look, well, in that case, why do we morally praise voters who perform incompetent surgery on the, body, on the body politic at the ballot box? Why would you praise someone who participated who didn't know what they were talking about? Seems odd. What's the difference between the surgeon and the voter? Seems like they're very similar. Uh, the, only, the main difference seems to be that in our society, we think the voter that it's okay to vote however you want. But why? All right, so, and again, if that argument seems overly straightforward to you, say, you know, that's what makes it a good argument. That's why it, ac it actually works, because it's not trying to confuse people with a bunch of verbiage that almost no one understands in order to trick them, or at least get them arguing with you long enough that they forget what the argument was about. Instead, it actually says, look, here's a case where, we are, where there's a clear answer. Here's another case that seems very similar. Why isn't the answer just as clear? Seems like it is. Right, of course, in the book, Jason makes a, a very scrupulous effort to persuade people who are not immediately impressed or convinced by the, by the analogy. Right? But this is the kind of reasoning that he does, and this works. It's the kind of reasoning where you actually might persuade someone who didn't, already, who didn't initially agree with you. And if they were persuaded, it wouldn't be because you would confuse them, but rather because you would enlighten them. All right, so again, you know, Brennan provides arguments that might persuade a reasonable person who initially disagrees with him. Which again, I, I, I can't emphasize it enough. That's the whole point of an argument. If, you, if everybody always ag already agrees, there's no need to argue. And if all that you can offer to someone as an argument is something that begins with something that they're not going to buy or that is hard to understand and that ends with something they disagree with, obviously they're not going to be convinced. They're just going to say, well, I, don't, I reject your premise or I don't understand your premise, right? so I still don't agree. Right? You know, so Brennan is actually sticking his neck out and doing the thing that philosophers should be doing, which is trying to come up with an argument that might change somebody's mind. All right, now to turn to Brennan's social science, he tries to convince us that his conclusions are not just true, but important, which I think is very neat. Right, so Brennan is not just a philosopher who talks to other philosophers, he actually reads social science to get an idea about, is this project worth pursuing? It's one thing to say, look, I figured out what the morally right thing to do is, but should you write a whole book about the morally right way to, say, open a jar of peanut butter? So, well, it's just not that big of a deal. Even if there was one morally right way to open a jar of peanut butter, it would be a mistake to write a whole book on it because there's more important things in life. Right? So when Jason writes an entire book on it, this is based upon a reading of social science saying that the issue that he's dealing with is worth dealing with, right? and it deserves a book. So how does he do this? <clears throat> well, what Jason does is he reviews a large social science literature showing that actually existing voters far fall short of his standards. 
And so actually existing voters just don't do very well. Not only are they ignorant, but as uh, I talk about in The Myth of Rational Voter, there are many areas where they believe the opposite of what well-informed people believe. Uh, you know, Jason mentioned the case of free trade versus protectionism. Uh, you know, interesting fact. Out of all the people who can correctly explain the textbook argument in favor of free trade, almost all believe in free trade. Out of all the people who cannot correctly explain the, argu the textbook argument in favor of free trade, almost everyone's a protectionist. This is not conclusive proof that free trade is the one right answer, but it's pretty convincing evidence overall. If you can explain what the standard argument is, you find it convincing. And if you're not convinced by it, it's probably because you can't explain it. Okay. All right, so as, an, as a social scientist who actually works in this area, I will vouch for his accuracy and also attention to detail. So his whole chapter where he goes over the social science evidence, and uh, it's, it's just a great summary. The, the fact that he's a philosopher going outside of his comfort zone, uh, you know, to me, when I, when, I went through, when I went through it, I said, wow, I mean, he has done a great job here. He has really done his homework. He's made a very serious and concerted effort to actually read a wide, wide, wide array of literature on here and then, uh, then integrate it with uh, his philosophic argument. So I mean, especially noteworthy here, uh, Brennan admits something that is actually very much in favor of voters, and you might think uh, uh, deeply undermines his thesis. So he actually admits that real-world voters do measure up to his principles on motivation. Because when you, when, you, uh, when you take a look at uh, the best data that, that is available on this, and there's a lot that's available, most voters seem to vote their conscience rather than their self-interest. If you come up with objective measures of self-interest, such as income, where you, say you might think, look, it's in the interest of rich, the, the rich to have a less progressive tax system, interest of the poor to have a more progressive tax system. If you get objective measures of self-interest and try to use these measures to predict how people vote or what, the, or what public policies they favor, it's generally shockingly hard to predict their views using, the, using measures of self-interest, and a lot of times you actually get the wrong sign. Uh, for example, economists are less worried about the economic harm that welfare is doing to the economy than, than the non-economists. And I say this is probably just basic numeracy. Economists know that we don't spend that much on welfare, so it just can't do that much harm. All right, again, not to say that uh, the welfare system is, uh, you know, is, a, is a good policy, but just it is not a major cause of uh, poor macroeconomic performance. Okay, so uh, Brennan actually uh, is thorough enough and honest enough in his summary literature to find a key fact that actually uh, argue, seems to argue in favor of voters. Uh, now, you know, he then goes on to note, also correctly, that real world voters fail to measure up on cognition. So motivation is good, cognition bad. Betty Benevolence really is a very accurate uh, depiction of the typical voter. And maybe not quite as bad as Betty, Betty Benevolence, who always does the wrong thing, uh, you know, while, while, with good intentions. But uh, you know, you know, a, a fair story about the typical voter is that he is well-meaning, wants to do what is best for the common good, or at least the national good, but has a lot of deeply mistaken beliefs about uh, what would promote that good. So now I actually have an article in Social Science Quarterly that argues that this combination that we see in the real world of unselfish motivation but ir and irrational cognition is actually the worst of the four logically possible combinations. Okay, so let's see, I don't think this made it into Jason's book, and no, no criticism of him that he hasn't read one obscure article. Uh, but uh, you know, the, this, the story that I have is basically this. Look, given, you know, like, given that people are unselfish, of course you'd want them to be rational. right? Because if someone is both unselfish and rational, then you can pretty much guarantee they're going to do what, it, what, is, uh, what, what is in the common good. Right? Now, if someone is, um, you know, is unselfish but irrational, this seems to be worse. Right, because well, now they want what's good for society, but on the other hand, uh, they they uh, they have some uh, deeply false views about how about how to produce it. Now, on the other hand, you go and look at the social science literature on what would democracy be like with rational, selfish voters, which is usually what economists think. 
Um, you know, so there I, may, I actually would disagree with Jason a little bit. I think there actually is some decent evidence that, or you know, decent argument that with rational voters, self-interest you know, would not lead, would at least lead to reasonably good, uh, reasonally good outcomes. Uh, see Donald Whitman's book, the myth, of, the myth of Democratic Failure, which I disagree with in many parts, but just makes the case, look, you know, with rational, selfish voters, at least the status quo policies benefit someone. In fact, they probably benefit the median voter. Right? And, if the, and if the minority is losing a lot as a result, they could offer a bribe to the median voter to do something different. Right? And you put this together and you get at least a fairly good picture of democracy. Then finally, you know, the last uh, you know, box in the quadrant, or the last of the one of the four quadrants to consider, is what about you know, irrational, selfish voters? You know, here my argument is, given that people have irrational beliefs, it's better for them to argue with each other. Right? And uh, when people vote their own interests, there's inevitably a lot of disagreement. So I'd rather that there be irrational people who are a cacophony of disagreement than irrational people who all converge on a common plan and work together well, because then they are able to readily and rapidly advance in the wrong direction. All right, so now I've got some questions. So my main criticism, the one that authors love to hear, which is you're not taking this far enough, Jason. You can go even further. Uh, and in particular, you know, people who, do, who vote badly aren't just hurting themselves. So why should there even be a right to vote wrongly? So you may remember Jason said, look, it's one thing to say you have a right to vote wrongly, and it's another thing to say that it is right to vote wrongly. Those two things are different, but it seems that his argument suggests that maybe you don't even have a right to vote wrongly. Right? Maybe that's wrong, too. Uh, but actually, Brennan is one step ahead of me. He has a recent paper in Philosophical Quarterly that makes this very argument. So he takes that away from me. Uh, so at least in this stage in career, uh, Brennan's probably wise to avoid metaethics. So in this book, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what does morality mean, what's it mean to be right, what is the nature of rightness, are the moral facts. He just goes with your common sense understanding of these issues. Uh, but at least in my reading, and I tried to confirm this at lunch, he is what I'll call a crypto-readian, uh, squarely in tradition of the Scottish philosophers of common sense. So one question for him, which he can elaborate on possibly, is, you know, am I correct? And if so, when will he come out of the closet? So uh, I like this book a lot. Now I'm waiting for him to move on to, you know, from assistant professor books where you focus on, uh, you know, on, on more concrete issues to uh, you know, associate and full professor books where you stick your neck out even further and go for the deepest issues. Again, I love this book, but I'm waiting for more. Right now, you know, other, other point. Now, Brennan's book wisely focuses on a mainstream audience, not libertarians. Why wisely? Because there are a lot more uh, main, <laughs> mainstream people than libertarians. So it would seem that this is, you know, this is a good argument to try to address a broader audience. And I also have the view that you generally write a better book if you try to aim it at people who don't already agree with you. Right? You challenge yourself more, and you come up with something better, generally, if in your mind you have a reasonable, well-meaning person who disagrees with you as your audience, rather than, say, all your best friends who are going to applaud almost anything you say. All right, so I think it is wise to do this, but he is a Cato today, so I, wanted, I do want to close with two libertarian questions that I don't think you get addressed in the book. Uh, first one, uh, if all your conclusions are true, should libertarians be less inclined to vote, since there are many other ways to pursue civic virtue? Or maybe they should be more inclined to vote, since their policy preferences are more likely to be what he calls epistemically justified and morally reasonable. So that's my question. So should libertarians read this, read this as a call to you know, start voting more or start voting less? Uh, my second question is this. Uh, probably the most vocal you know, view, uh, you know, view on voting that is common among libertarians is just that voting is always wrong. I'd say it's still a minority position, but if there's a libertarian loudly saying, here's my view on voting, uh, it's a fair bet that he is telling you that you should never vote and that it is always wrong to vote. So I am curious uh, as to how Jason would respond to the libertarian who thinks that voting is wrong per se, because there are a lot of them out there, right? And if Jason's right and they're wrong, then uh, they need to be at least thinking about getting out to vote. 
So I will leave it there. Yeah, if you want okay. to do that now Just before do here we or there. Yeah, let's see if it works. Okay. It yeah. does. Uh, <clears throat> okay. So as far as metaethics, uh, I, I guess I'm sort of a, um, you know, typical Morian intuitionist or something. I'm not sure if that's very interesting. Uh, but I want to explain what that means to this audience because it'll take too long. Um, but I guess, yeah, common sense philosophy is what I'm trying to do, even though obviously in this, pa this book I'm undermining a lot of common sense, but I'm trying to undermine it using more commonsensical common sense. Uh, as far as like whether, you know, is it wrong to vote period? I guess like George Smith has an article arguing that somewhere and other, some libertarians think that, you know, suppose like the ideal society would have a certain structure and that there are certain institutions that wouldn't even exist in that ideal society. Um, does that follow that if you're in a non-ideal society that you shouldn't use any of the institution, any of these existing institutions? I don't see why that would be the case. Um, you know, like suppose you know, there's many, some people in this room might believe that all roads should be provided privately. Does that mean you shouldn't drive on public roads, even if there's like an element of exploitation or so on? I guess I think the costs there are pretty high. Given that we're in a political system, uh, like, let's suppose for the sake of argument, we should be anarchist, but even we're in a political system, we're in a democracy, um, and I don't think it's like inherently wrong just to be, participate in that and try to make things better rather than worse, given that the system's in place. I mean, you might say you're only encouraging them, but I guess I don't find that very convincing. And the other argument was about, or question was about, should be, people be more or less inclined to vote? Well, well particularly, should libertarians be more or less inclined yeah. to vote? Because it seems like you've got one argument uh, for, for more voting, one argument for less voting. What's the net effect? Yeah. How, how, I, to answer that, I have to know, how inclined are they to vote in the first place? See, I think John might now. Yeah. Uh, well, David Bowes has evidence on how many libertarians there are. I don't know if there's data on how much turnout there is, but I think they're probably, they fit categories of people likely to vote, higher education. Yeah. Of course, I could just be deluding myself about that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't really have an answer to that question, to be honest. I mean, I said it would depend upon the answer, but then at the <laughs> same time, I'm not really sure if I do, if I do know that. Uh, you know, I, I don't think they have a duty to vote. Uh, if you know you're part of a group that could have a lot of influence um, and you can make things a lot better, you might decide to band together and and uh, participate as a group. And if you actually, like, form a coalition and you, you organize stuff, that can maybe create reasons to vote where there otherwise wouldn't be some. But at the end of the day... Uh, like libertarians aren't going to have a lot of influence through voting. You as an individual aren't going to have an influence, a lot of influence through voting. So if you if you really want to make a difference as a libertarian, you're going to do a better job for politics. You'll do a better job changing the median voter's mind or swaying him or her just a little bit to one side or the other rather than trying to vote yourself. It just isn't making that much of a difference. Um, there are just a lot of different ways to serve the common good if you're interested in doing that and to exercise civic virtue. So for you, you can, you can decide based on your particular dispositions and aptitudes what's the best way to do it. Um, and that could mean voting. It might not mean voting. It might mean doing something else. Right. Okay, let's go to the question and answer session. Now, uh, the, the guidelines are please wait for the microphone first. Second, Please identify yourself and any kind of affiliation you want to accept. And the gentleman in the front row was ready to go, so please, far away. I'm Steve Hankin, also relation. Yeah, is it working? Hello? Testing. Test. <laughs> Do we have another one? You're going to have to project to the back of the room here. So we'll just wait a second. And if all things fail, everyone will have to project. Sorry, it's not working. You can project. All right. 
assuming that a person is well-versed in all the issues and would meet all your criterion of being able to be an effectively good voter, and uh, after having prepared himself, he decides, nah, I don't want to vote. Um, does he have an obligation to vote, given that that he has a clear choice and he's an effective, he would he well versed and he would be an effective voter? Could I ask? Did everyone hear the question? The question basically was, if they are a good voter and they meet the conditions, do they have an obligation to vote? Or can they just say, I don't want to? That was much more succinct than I said it. <laughs> okay. uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, it's just one of many, voting well is just one of many things you can do to pay a debt to society, to contribute to the common good, and so on. Um, there's The fact that you're good at something doesn't mean that you have to do it. So suppose it turns out that I actually like would be a much better physician than I would be a philosopher. It doesn't mean I have a moral obligation to be a physician over a philosopher. Um, I could still decide to be a philosopher anyways. Suppose it would be easy for you to vote well. Well, that might mean like if it's easy for you to vote well and you have nothing else to do, then hey, you might think maybe I should do it. And, and maybe it's praiseworthy if you do, but it doesn't mean you have an obligation to do it. Um, if you've prepared to do it and you've spent time working on it and you change your mind at the last minute, maybe you want to go to a movie. Um, I might think it's kind of strange that you put it in the effort or so on, but I don't see something morally wrong there. So the idea is that the problem with arguments for in favor of showing, uh, attempts to argue that there's a duty to vote is they never specifically get you to you have to vote. Instead, they just get you to do something for society, try not to free ride, try to pay a debt, try to express civic virtue. They never get you specifically to voting. And so even in that case where it'd be easy to vote, it's just, still, it's just nothing special. Uh, the gentleman right here in a couple of seats back. Hi, Clint Townsend with Students for Liberty. Um, when you say that voters should vote for uh, what is the common good, to me that means that they will have to vote for um, the principles of individual liberty and free markets. That is the only thing that constitutes the common good. So I'm wondering about uh, people who would prefer alternative political orders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and it gets us into something, sort of the harder bit of philosophy here. but. What I actually argue that people have an obligation to vote for what they justifiably believe will promote the common good, and that can allow that they can be mistaken about what the common good is. Um, it can allow that it's compatible with a, a wide range of theories of what the common good is, not necessarily just a libertarian one, but it's also compatible with the view that they could be mistaken. So the claim, something like, if you are justified in believing that this is the right end of government, some theory here of the right ends of government, you're justified in thinking, like you have sufficiently strong evidence to warrant your belief in thinking this is what government should do, and you vote accordingly, then I think even though you're mistaken, it turns out you're wrong, um, it was permissible, you're sort of excused. You know, kind of like if there were a doctor who, it's sort of like, imagine there's a doctor who wants to cure your disease, and the evidence that he has strongly favors him thinking that this medicine will help you, and it just turns out, well, you know, despite the evidence, he was wrong. Well, I mean, he was mistaken, like it wasn't the actual, it won't actually cure you. In that kind of case, I'd say he didn't do anything morally wrong, he didn't act negligently, he, what he did was permissible, it just unfortuitously, unfortunately, uh, it, was a mis it was wrong. The answer was wrong. So I would say the same thing about voters. If, if you have really strong evidence for thinking that Marxism is the correct theory of justice um, and you vote accordingly, then you are a good voter even though you turned out to vote for something that was false. Yeah. So you'd be excused in this case. You know, excusable because you're not guilty of negligence or anything like that. Uh, let's work our way back here in the third row again and then we'll get the gentleman that's been waiting. 
Uh, Rick Sincere. I'm with the uh, Electoral Board for the city of Charlottesville. Uh, but my question is, do your criteria for ethical voting apply as well to legislators who are voting on bills and resolutions and things? Yeah, in fact, they must. I think they'd apply even more strongly because with, when it comes to legislators, you get uh, an additional um, an additional argument in favor of thinking they should vote well, which is that their votes actually have quite a bit of efficacy. You know, because there are so few legislators, typically your chances of being uh, decisive go up rather dramatically. So the expected disutility of a bad vote can actually be significant. The expected utility of a good vote can be significant. On this point, though, maybe this isn't what you're going with this. I think it's worth mentioning, I didn't mention it in the, the main talk, is that this is consistent with strategic voting, with recognizing that simply voting for what you sincerely think is the best thing might actually not help. So in the book, there's a length, somewhat lengthy discussion about strategic voting and how that all works. And so legislators might have grounds to log roll or to vote for something that they actually would be bad if they got their way, but voting for it might be good. Um, but yeah, I think the, the requirements for legislators are even stronger because what they do is much more significant than what I do as a voter. Gentleman right there. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks. Um, Travis Hatchin with the ACLU. Um, and I guess my question for you, and I have to start off, I, I haven't read the book, so I, um, I'm just going off of your presentation. But to me, the way that I just the argument seems to be lacking teeth a little bit in as much that it, it seems just so theoretical uh, and hypothetical for it to ever find real use application. Like, because, you know, because if, if a person's voting and, you know, they feel like they're informed on the situation and, and they feel like they're voting for the common good, you know, whether or not they're mistaken or not, I mean, there's no, you know, without uh, looking back, um, where it, it's pretty impossible to weed out, you know, who's right, who's wrong, what is the common good. I mean, it it just seems, it it, it just seems kind of like I, I don't really see where or what the point of your argument would like. What kind of action would you call for, or what would you change? Because I mean, it seems a little bit just like praying for world peace. I mean, yeah. I, I don't really see what you're suggesting, honestly. Yeah. Well, I. Uh Actually, in the book, um, uh, there's a bunch of sections where I say something kind of like that about myself. Uh, the argument is largely self-effacing in many respects because people who think that they are uh, people who are bad voters will often think they're good voters. You know, it's kind of an unscientific experiment. And there's actually evidence in favor of this too. Um, you know, I asked a guy who uh, who I thought was like a paradigmatic bad voter. Well, do you think? What do you think about this argument that that uh, irrational or biased or something voters shouldn't vote? And he said, Oh yeah, clearly other people shouldn't be voting, just me. Right. <laughs> so you're right. So there's a certain degree of self-effacingness here. It's hard, it's hard for most people to self-identify. Now, suppose the book sold, you know, two million copies or something like that and was widely talked about everywhere. It's possible that one effect of that would be that people would start, and I convinced a lot of people of the central thesis, it's possible that one effect of that would be that people start to recognize that, that there are these uh, p bad patterns of behavior and they might recognize that they tend to think that they're doing better than they are and be somewhat, um, you know, more self-critical. Um, but the actual effect of it is, like, I don't think this is going to change the world. In fact, I think the last, the closing sentence of the book is that this book will not save the world. So it is a little bit like praying for world peace. You know, that said, can somebody act on the advice here? I mean, the advice is pretty simple. It's probably, if, if I take, if I take you or you're a random person sampled from America, probably you are a bad voter according to this theory. So until you have reason to think otherwise, don't vote, right? 
So there's some practical advice. Don't vote until you have really good grounds for thinking you should vote. And uh, if you think you have good grounds, you probably don't. So be really self-critical in that too. Like you're, you're likely to think you're smarter than you are, including me. Maybe I'm a bad voter. It's possible that I'm not actually all that good either. Gentleman on the roll there. <clears throat> well, just wait a second. You may be surprised. <laughs> Um, Jeff Boxer, I'm with the Center for American Progress. Given that I guess there's such a high th threshold for being able to vote, you need to understand economic theory, for understand international relations, a whole wide range of issues. Do you think that, I guess, current laws such as uh, 18 is a voting age, do you think that should be raised? Do you think there should be a higher threresholds, I guess, for being able to vote? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any, you know, there's nothing really special inherently about age. It's possible that there are people who are 13 who are competent voters, and there's a whole wide range of people who are, who are 18 and older who are not competent voters. Um, so I'm not really sure what the best policy solution is to this. I mean, in, in current work that I'm writing about, I'm talking about whether it could be permissible to exclude people from voting or having competence exams and things like that to actually require, like make, not make voting a universal right, but making something you have to earn in the way that you have to earn being a driver. Um, and there are really strong arguments against that that hold that it's in, impermissible and not consistent with liberalism and so on. And those are strong arguments, and um, it takes a lot of work to show whether they fail or not. Uh, as far as other than that, like, you know, should we do something? Uh, I, I'm really not sure if there's anything you can do. I mean, one, some stuff we might be able to do to make people better voters is change what happens in public education. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that we learn in high school and middle school isn't all that helpful for making us good citizens. And uh, nominally, one of the reasons for public education is to prepare people to be citizens. But like, I'm fortunate that I came, from, um, I came from a public school system in New Hampshire where everyone is required to take a semester of economics. And unlike most of my peers, I actually like, understood a lot of it and took it to heart. And it's changed my thinking ever since. It was a real epiphany for me. But what if you had students learn a lot of economics year after year after year after year, then it would become kind of second nature to them. The counterintuitiveness of a lot of economics would, become, would disappear and they'd get it and they'd be better voters. What if people, instead of learning algebra, which no, almost no one uses, learn statistics and learn about how people can lie with statistics and learn how to interpret statistics properly? Then they'd be less likely to be swayed by uh, politicians' misuse of these things. So there might be something you can do with uh, schooling to make people into better voters, like on the front end, rather than trying to raise the age or this or that. I just want to say one thing about that. So, I mean, I, I got this a lot for the myth of the rational voter and just one paragraph where I mentioned the possibility of giving two votes to people, with college, to college graduates. I was asked about that on more radio shows than any other paragraph in the book. Uh, but, you know, you know, most of the, you know, the problem with most procedural reforms is they suffer from a catch-22, which is if you could get them democratically adopted, then you wouldn't really need them. So if you could actually convince the median voter the median voter was incompetent, well, he would probably not be incompetent anymore. Uh, you know, at that point, uh, so you know, so there, you know, there is this catch-22 with most procedural reforms. And in terms of what practical thing you could actually do, what could you actually say to improve things? I think actually one of the most basic ones is just you know very strongly and publicly reversing our view of someone who votes irresponsibly versus someone who doesn't vote. When someone doesn't vote, uh, we should be much more much more willing to praise them, saying you know like you know like thank you, like it's a good thing to not vote when you don't know what you're doing. I remember you know, Greg Mankiw, I think he had a column for Fortune, and the one column of his that was not run was one where he said, if you're uninformed, don't vote. Right? So and I, you know, this, this, this is a norm that, on the one, one hand, you know, it, seem, you know, it seems like it actually makes some difference to people. There's a lot of people who vote out of a sense of guilt, even though they don't know what they're doing. And just to make a very concerted effort to change the norm so that we stop, you know, stop harassing people who are doing the right thing given that they don't know what they're talking about, which is not voting. Uh, so it seems like we, uh, this, this is maybe the most practical thing that we can get out of Jason's book. 
Let me uh, follow up since we have someone from CAP here. I'll, I'll press a uh, sort of lefty kind of question uh, to Jason, which would be this. In their book, uh, Red St um, Rich State, Poor State, Red State, Blue State, Andrew Gelman and his colleagues uh, sum up their argument as poor people vote the same everywhere. It's rich people that vote differently, and they vote differently in different states. That's what, why Mississippi's not like Connecticut. So, and the idea there is, I think follows also, is that there's a strong income component to poor people voting everywhere, but rich people vote on cultural issues and, and that sort of thing. Now, perhaps Brian and you would want to de deny the Gelman, let's call it the Gelman premise, because uh, as to regards to motivation, but if we don't, that's one way. If the premise is wrong, then you're out of that. But if, if we set that aside and say the premise is correct, then essentially your conclusions are ones that say, well, you know, poor people shouldn't vote because they've got bad motivations about the common good. But uh, more, as you go up the income scale, it becomes increasingly likely that people should vote, right? So if, I guess I would ask you both questions, you might want to set aside the premise, the Gelman premise, but if the Gelman premise is correct, does that give you any pause in uh, uh, your argument, uh, that uh, the plausibility or desirability of your conclusions? Yeah. Uh, I, I take on some stuff like this and even some stuff with regard to race in the book a little bit because uh, one, one other kind of uncomfortable implication of my view is uh, chances are, given facts about American history and, and bad things that have happened in the past and are happening now, uh, someone who's going to qualify as a, a white person is more likely to qualify as a good voter, in my theory, than many minority groups. So along those, even probably even worse than the, than the objection that you're pressing. Um, it does give me some pause. You know, it seems like an uncomfortable implication, but, you know, according to the best evidence available to me, uh, all things being equal, a rich person is more likely to be a good voter than a, a poor person. That's not to say that most rich people are good voters. Probably most of them aren't. Um, however, like income does predict, is correlated with other things that are correlated with things that are likely to make you a good voter. Um, if people are voting well, then it doesn't really, if they're actually following my theory, if they're actually abiding by the norms set out in the ethics of voting, it really wouldn't matter what their income is. When we hear a bunch of rich people vote and a bunch of poor people abstain, we naturally think, uh-oh, that was gonna, what's going to mean is the rich people vote for themselves and vote selfishly for exploitative policies that leave the poor behind or use them as tools and they vote in their own self-interest, and that is a worrisome thing. But that's not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating people voting for stuff that promotes the common good and on the basis of really sound evidence that it will do so. So if, if people were to follow my advice and the result was just a bunch, of, like, a bunch of rich people voted and none of the poor people voted, that would be awesome for the poor people. It would be better than if the poor people voted, if given the background we're, of, we're assuming here about what people know. Okay. I, I, uh, yeah, sure, sure. I, I, I'm going to say, say, say a little bit about that. Um, let's see. What was I going to say? Hmm. I'm suddenly drawing a blank. Oh, yes. Uh, so, I mean, the empirical evidence against what I call the self-interested voter hypothesis, the idea that people vote their pocketbooks, is just so strong that it really makes it hard to take, to take uh, you know, concerns about, like, you know, like, like you know, high-income people are voting too much, uh, you know, very seriously. Look, like, it's just not the case that high-income people vote for policies that benefit high-income people. You know, really what's going on is that... Their, you know, their motivations are very similar to those of people lower income, but they are just much more likely to uh, be, aware, be aware of not only the facts, but also you know, like, you know, basic economic principles and so on. And uh, you know, particularly worth pointing out that uh, you know, left-right ideology has basically no correlation with income. So slight. It's basically you need to take out a statistical microscope to detect it. So the idea that this is going to skew things left to right uh, is just not true. 
it might be worth saying something about why that is too. I mean, there's a lot of empirical evidence that that's true aside from what I'm about to say, but just sort of intuitively you can kind of grasp it. If your vote has almost no chance of making a difference and you grasp this, then you kind of recognize voting in my favor doesn't really make a difference. If, the, if, the, if Obama in the last election had promised to pay me $10 billion out of the Treasury, it's worth a lot for me to have him win, but it's not worth a lot for me to vote for him. My vote for him would still be worth thousands of orders of magnitude less than a penny. So because of that, people think, like effectively, that people are somewhat aware of that. They don't know the exact numbers, and Gelman actually disagrees with them. He thinks votes actually count for a lot. But uh, because people are vaguely aware of that, they don't have much incentive to vote selfishly. They might as well vote altruistically. However, at the same time, because they don't have, because it doesn't make much of a difference, most of them don't bother to get informed, or they don't bother to overcome biases and so on. And there's actually, I forget the authors, but I talk about at the end of the book, there was a study done recently, an experiment, where they took people, put them in a hypothetical voting situation with real money attached, and they could either vote for the common good or vote selfishly, and then they varied the probability that voters would be decisive. And what they found was, when they had very low probability of being decisive, people voted um, altruistically for the common good, and when they had high probability of decisive being decisive, they voted selfishly. So we might be in another catch-22. If I increase your electrical, electoral efficiency uh, or efficacy, you're more likely to vote selfishly, but also more likely to be informed. If I decrease it, like the way it is now, where you have almost no chance of making a difference, you're not very likely to be informed, but you are likely to vote altruistically. Gentleman on the aisle here. Yes, uh, Al Gibson. My question is: Do you do you think that the, your your premise of uh, the the ultimate voter for the common good would lead to a more limited government or an expansion of government? Yeah, uh, I think it would lead to it would be more limited in many respects and less limited in others. Probably, um, let's just take for, forget about my personal views about what's right or wrong and just look at. Uh, um, enlightened preference literature. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. So the enlightened preference literature is something like this. You, you take a survey of people's political beliefs. Um, you take a survey of what they know, like about what their actual political knowledge is, measurable uh, political knowledge or some other stuff. And then you take a survey of their demographic factors. And then you find correlations between their demographic, demographic factors and their beliefs and between their, their knowledge and their beliefs. And when you do this, you can find out what influence money has in their beliefs. You can have, find out what influence uh, being a certain race or a sex or a certain age has in their beliefs. And then you can correct for that and simulate what a society would look like if everybody had perfect political knowledge. And when you do this, and, and Brian does this in his book with regards to economic knowledge, and I think you've got a paper coming out with it comes, when it comes to political knowledge, it's like certain claims about how political science works. And uh, Scott Althaus does this um, with a different set of data um, with regard to a wide range of policy preferences. What you find is when you try to simulate um, the enlightened public, and this is using three different sets of data, um, you get that they are overall more in favor of limited government in most respects. Like they're, they're much, much less warlike. Um, they, they favor uh, certain kinds of reductions in the welfare state that don't really work. They're not, they're not like libertarian. They don't, they don't favor non, no welfare state whatsoever. Um, they favor uh, you know, certain kinds of environmental policies, but not others. Um, they, uh, what are some of the other stuff that they end up favoring? Uh, they are, they're much more in favor of like, say, a lot, like civil liberties, allowing like, say, gay marriage and stuff like that. They're much more open and tolerant. Uh, so I think, yeah, overall the effect would be a more limited government. It would, make, it would push society in a more classical liberal direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, like, like just um, you know, one quibble, you know, 
what so the way that Althaus really describes results on foreign policy is, you know, there, you know, among among the enlightened, there's much less support for any kind of like nuke all strategy. However, <laughs> uh, the enlightened are more likely to favor like like you know, moderate intervention in more in more places. So it's you know a little just it's not quite that they are you know that they are more pacifist, but you know, um, you know, you know they are you know less less willing to say anything truly heinous, but more likely to want to have a lot of small you know, more smaller interventions. Right there in the f behind the bar. Yes, Bill Glack, and w would you say two questions? Would you say that? That was a description of the average voter, and if so, who and she is, who is he or she? And the second question would be, um, what if you paid people? What would the voter turnout be? Do you think if you paid people to come out and vote, let's say ten or twenty dollars or whatever? Yeah. When you're asking um, about was that a description, you mean the the preferences I was just describing in response to that? That, no, that was a that was a description of uh, hypothetical policy preferences that pe that the American society would have if you m waved a magic wand and gave everybody perfect knowledge. So it is we've we've got or, these or, or strictly speaking, a perfect score on a really easy political IQ test. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Brian Brian has a better way to answer that. Brian's more of an expert on that than I. I'll let him answer that. What do you, what, how would you characterize the average voter, the median voter? Yeah, the median voters. There's a difference between the median and the average voter, and the median voter matters. So, I like. mean, yeah, so median levels of knowledge are extremely low, and uh, you know, and you and 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 all, and not not just that are in knowledge low, but there's you know many many areas you know like economic knowledge where the median person basically believes the opposite of what informed people believe. So, or, yeah, right, yes. Uh, I think if you paid people, you'd get a much higher turnout. Um, you know, if you gave people, for most, a lot of people, it's, it can be costly for them to vote. Uh, like, they can't take the time off from work or something like that. And so for them, like, like money might make a real difference. But for many people, they're kind of on the border. They're like, I don't know if it's really worth it. And if you gave them $100, they might take the 15 minutes to go and do it. Um, you know, and, and one, some evidence in favor of that is uh, uh, there are certain countries that require you to vote. You're required to cast a ballot if not vote. And often if you don't vote, you pay like a very small fine, $50. Now, granted, people are more averse to losing $50 than they are to, to, being pay, to losing the opportunity to be paid $50. But still, when, in those countries, you get something like 85 to 95% turnout. Most people are do it, and even though these stakes are very low. So I think if, you were, if, you, if we just gave everybody $50 to vote, I bet you'd get much, much higher turnout. Um, I don't think that... In, interestingly, even though I think it's uh, bad that we have as many people voting as they as do, because most people aren't very good voters, um, I don't think going from having the participation rates we have in the U.S. to having near universal participation would make make things much worse. I think most of the damage has already been done. So, you know, getting increased in turnout I think would make things a little bit worse, but I don't think it would make things much worse. Presumably, you have no moral problem with such payments, unless perhaps they're done through the tax system. Uh, well, I have no. I, I don't think it's inherently wrong to pay people to vote. Um, if I, I didn't talk about this at all uh, today, but in the chapter six of the book, I talk about what if you're a good voter and like you know the person you were describing earlier. What if you're someone who would vote well but you just don't feel like it, and I offer you a hundred dollars to do it? Is it wrong for me to offer it to you? Is it wrong for you to take it? And I argue that no, it's actually permissible for you to take the money and to vote. Um, however, if I'm if I'm paying you to vote badly, then that's a different story. So if I pay you to vote in an exploitative or evil way, then 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 I'm doing something wrong, and you're doing something wrong. So as far as whether government should be financing voting and paying people to vote, uh, I think the first step for that would be the, fir the very first premise you need to show in order to like make an argument for that would be that having a lot of people vote does a lot of good, and that's just not true, so we don't even have to worry about the rest of it. Gentleman right here. 
Hi, my name is Joaquin Salcedo. Um, I'm originally from Bolivia, and that's a country where the vote is you have to vote. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a, a lot of unions in, in Bolivia, and a certain phenomenon that's been occurring recently is that the unions will have uh, a mandatory vote for the people in the union. And so would you suggest it be okay if the union leaders are informed and then they tell uh, the members <clears throat> how to vote? Mm -hmm. um, is it okay for them to tell them how to vote? I mean, not that they would tell them how to vote um, necessarily, but that they're taking the responsibility of becoming informed and then they have this massive vote from their members. Yeah. Now, do the members know that the uh, do the members know that their leaders, that the union leaders, are informed, and that they should that they do they know that they can trust the leaders? Um, I don't know if it's so much trust as it is coercion. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> well, then it sounds bad. But uh, let me. But let me. Let me kind of talk, talk about a similar kind of question that's easier because it doesn't require me to know the facts about the Bolivian uh, trade unions. Um, so. Uh, there's something called social epistemology, which is about how we acquire knowledge from one another. Because a lot of what we know is based on testimony. Like, you know, I've, I believe that there was Australia for a long time, but I didn't actually go there till this summer and see it for myself. And it's, you know, I believe a lot of things about the world based upon other people's testimony. It's possible for you to be justified. And in fact, a lot of your beliefs are justified on the basis of other people telling you things and them being trustworthy. So imagine the following scenario. An angel appears and the angel, and I, and I know that the, somehow I know it's an angel. I know that it never lies, and I know that it's perfectly informed and omniscient. And the angel says, "In the upcoming election, vote for X." And I say, "Why?" And it says, "I'm not going to tell you. I'm just telling you that X is the right way to vote." And I know it doesn't lie. I now have indubitable evidence that I should vote for X. I now have better justification for voting for X than like anyone else in the real world, even though I don't really understand the issues at all. So it could at least be possible that um, people could have really good grounds for voting on the basis of the testimony of others. Now, I gave you the angel example because that's supposed to be relatively simple. In the real world, what you see is a bunch of people claiming to be experts, some of whom are not only not experts but are buffoons. I mean, a lot of people on television who claim to be experts like get it wrong all the time. Like, they, like, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so it's much harder to just sort of trust the testimony of others when it comes to politics. But at least hypothetically, there could be a case where you're taking someone else's testimony that they should vote one way is itself sufficient grounds for you to think it's okay to vote that way. Now, suppose, on the other hand, the, the, the leaders tell them to vote this way and the, and the p individual people aren't justified. They, don't, they, don't, they shouldn't trust the leaders. It might still be okay for you to influence people. You know, imagine a world in which like, we go back in time and somehow or other you can convince people to vote for women's rights early. You can't actually convince them that women should have rights. You can't actually explain to them why they should. You can't, you can't change their minds, but you can just somehow influence them to do it. It seems like it might be, wor even though they're going to be bad voters and on my theory they shouldn't vote, it doesn't mean that you, the person influencing them to vote um, badly, like are doing something wrong. They're voting badly because they don't know what they're doing, but you're doing something okay because you know that these incompetent people are sort of fortuitously doing the right thing. So that's, that involves quite a bit of nuance, but I talk about that at some length in the book. There's an important exception to, to Jason's rule that you can't trust people advising you in a public way. Uh, you can trust the staff of the Cato Institute. <laughs> Other questions? Gentleman front has a... Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Um, I'll ask. Um, uh, I, th I thought the presentations were, you know, some of the conclusions I agreed with yours. Like it's okay not to vote. Uh, uh, however, 
all the logic behind it was very confusing with my engineering background, uh, and so was the comments. But I caught something that I have a question on. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, um, he uh, showed on his slide, most voters vote their conscience, not their self-interest. And my understanding is we always vote our self-interest. And sometimes the conscience coincides with self-interest. And uh, the word self-interest, the way I look at it, is, of course, the social and the national mm -hmm. self-interest is included in that. My inter I mean, the old saying in this country used to be when I came in the 70s was, what's good for General Motors is good for America. <laughs> so I yeah. consider what's my self-interest should be good for this country. Uh, given that, that's uh, one uh, aspect of the question. Uh, and there's another for Mr. Samples I would like to. I, I looked at your paper in which you said, uh, um, so you can answer that question later, uh, later on. Let me ask his question, and both you can answer together. Uh, you say here that uh, they argue that uh, voter turnout is steadily declining largely because of voter cynicism caused by um, uh, money, uh, caused by big money campaigns, and uh, of course, negative political. Uh, now. My understanding is um, I've been familiar with United States from 1963 or 64 because of Kennedy's connection to India. Mm -hmm. uh, and we used to have American student delegation come to India. And I remember in 1964-65, we had a delegation of American students, like about uh, 100. Mm -hmm. And most of them criticized us, who we were born and brought up in India, being cynical about our politician mm -hmm. because we consider them all crooks, you know. Mm -hmm. They said, how could you, you're a democracy, we are a democracy. We believe our leaders are honest, upright, and good. So my thinking is that your conclusion may not be exactly because at that time, before 67 or whatever, mm -hmm. that cutoff point or 68, mm -hmm. people in this country literally believed that they're leaders were good, but after they saw Nixon's smoke-filled rooms and mm -hmm. the Republican smoke-filled rooms and had experience with it, they got paranoid. Like we people in India, we were paranoid even in those days. Let's, let's go. We're r running out of time here. Let's go to, the, to our, our panelists. Um, as far as, you know, our voters, self, do they act in their self-interest or in the, in the national good or the common good or something like that? I mean, by self-interest, uh, you can define how selfish you want. When I was talking about being a self-interested voter, I mean that they're willing to promote their own welfare um, even at the expense of society. Um, or they don't care only about their own welfare. They don't really care about the, the benefit of welfare of society unless it somehow benefits them in turn. And before, you know, when I was younger, I thought that people voted selfishly. That's what the media tells me. But then having, like, studied these issues, I find that there's study after study after study using a very a wide variety of methods trying to test the question of whether voters are self-interested. And they, most, the vast majority of them come down on the claim that they're not. So I can't, like, show that to you right now. But I can say if you go to page 196 of the book and look at footnote, or like footnote 2, I list a bunch of references there, and you could go and track, look at those studies, and you could see how they do it. And what you'll find is, over and over and over again, they come to the claim that people vote. They're, they're nationalist sociotropes, meaning they vote for what they perceive to be the common good of the nation. They don't vote in the common good of the world. They're not typically cosmopolitan, but they vote for what they perceive to be the common good of the nation. So the reason I believe that is because that's what the evidence available to me points towards, even though it's highly it's against common sense. The common sense belief is that people vote selfishly. 
Yeah, and just just to uh, to say one thing more on that. So, of course, there's many different definitions of self-interest. There's one definition that's just self-interest is whatever interests the self, in which case Mother Teresa is as selfish as anybody else. That's one definition. It's a fine definition. It's not the only definition. And unsurprisingly, it's not a definition that empirical researchers have used because there'd be nothing empirical to do if that were your definition. So what empirical researchers try to do is come up with a narrower sense of you know, something like you know, being focused on your own you know, like, you know, material comforts, your own personal safety, uh, you know, and uh, off, often adding in you know, the well-being of immediate family members, something like that. So I mean, like a typical study of self-interest in politics would be something like see, seeing how much, you know, how much does uh, having higher income change your probability of being a Republican or a Democrat? So it seems that Republicans favor policies that are more in the self-interest of higher income people, Democrats more in the, in the self-interest of lower income people. Uh, so I mean, that's just the kind of thing. But you know, like Jason said, there's, there's, there's huge literature on this. So I mean, and, and that's, the kind of, that's the kind of evidence that we're talking about is ones where you use a narrower definition that is falsifiable. And it turns out that it's not only falsifiable, but false, that voters are highly self-interested. So you believe in that particular statement you had? Yeah, 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 of course. And uh, on mine, the quick, uh, the idea is, or was, that uh, as trust in government and general cynicism grew over time, that uh, turnout went down with it. Uh, two things, uh, trust did go uh, down in government and general cynicism, I suppose, over time, and it did begin in the mid-60s. The problem with that is turnout didn't go down over time. It, uh, it seemed to but only because people were mismeasuring turnout for a long time, which didn't speak well of political science. Uh, it, actually, what happened was turnout went down a lot right about the time of Watergate, and then it was in the same path for a long time. And then in, we are now in the high turnout period with presidential elections, which may or may not be good, Jason. We don't know. Thank you very much. Thanks to Jason Brennan. Thanks to Brian Kaplan. And Congratulations on the book. I'd like to invite everyone upstairs for a reception. <laughs>